Blog Talk Radio. I'm your host and founder of Alzheimer's Speaks, Lori LeBay. And the reason I got on this journey and decided to venture into dementia is I was dealing with a mother who had dementia for over 30 years, so more than half of my life. And in dealing with this disease, I just found really quickly that we are not prepared as a community or a society to deal with this well. And um, so I decided to try to make a difference and um, started a blog called Alzheimer's Speaks, just sharing my story of positive experiences and how to live well with this disease. I got really tired of, of hearing people talk about how awful the disease is. And, you know, any disease is, is not something we choose, but there is life and there's beautiful, beautiful relationships with, with dementia. And so on Alzheimer's Speaks, we try to look at all different facets. Um, bottom line, we're an advocacy-based company providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care. So not only do we have the, the blog and the radio show, this afternoon we'll also be doing Dementia Chats, which is, which is a free webinar that people can attend where our experts are those actually diagnosed with the disease. Um, you know, our whole goal is really to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort, and we truly believe that by joining forces and having these everyday conversations and sharing knowledge about life with dementia and sharing our resources that we can really remove the stigmas and help people living with the disease, not only those diagnosed, but those caring for them, live with purpose and have have great lives. And I know that we're making a difference because in uh, 2012, we were honored to be... um, uh, to be the number one influencer online regarding Alzheimer's disease um, online, according to Dr. Oz and ShareCare, which was just a massive, massive honor. And that really had nothing to do, you know, with me as an individual. That has to do with us as a group, um, as a community, sharing knowledge. Your likes, your tweets have a big impact. And so I'm going to ask you right now, if you wouldn't mind just liking the show, go ahead and you know, if you've got a Twitter account, push it out. If you have a Facebook or a LinkedIn, shoot it in that direction because you never know who in your circle needs this information. And the more we can push the information out, the um, more comfortable they're going to feel tapping in to the resources that are available. 
Um, speaking of resources, we also have a resource directory um, where you can, you know, search for information. But I built it collaboratively, so that means you can also input information because I don't think any one person or organization can do this disease justice in terms of finding all the resources. So if you've read a book or seen a video or got a newsletter or hired a service, um, you know, or know of a research project, there's so many different variables. You can become a member of our site and add information in as well. Again, our whole philosophy is about sharing and working together as one. And today on the show, we would love to invite you um, to be part of the conversation. And you can do that a couple of ways. You can utilize your chat box. And um, I will be monitoring that throughout the show and go ahead and make comments and, and questions. Um, or you can call in live to the show as well. And that number is 714-364-4757. Again, that's 714-364-4757. And if you're listening via the computer, that number is right above the pictures. Um, you can even call in using a, a Skype line if you have one. So lots of different ways to be able to interact with us. Uh, before I introduce our, our first guest, we have two great guests. I'm really, really excited about having both with us today. Um, I always like to give a shout out to organizations that I think are really making a difference, organizations I think people need to know about and take seriously. Um, the Purple Angel Project is um, something that's near and dear to my heart. Um, it was started by Norms McNamara over in the UK, and it has gone global and viral. The Purple Angel is the new, um, the new. I shouldn't even say new because it wasn't like there was an old one, but it's a new symbol for dementia, and we want this symbol to be as well-known as the pink ribbon for breast cancer. And it's available to individuals and organizations and communities and businesses to utilize to help raise awareness. And if you'd like more information on that, please go to, um, you know, Alzheimer's Speaks at our About page. And we have a whole page on the Purple Angel Project. I'd be more than glad to talk with you about that particular project, how you can get information. I'm also just going to put that link here in our chat box if you're listening as well. Another organization is uh, ADI, <clears throat> which is the Alzheimer's, um, <clears throat> Alzheimer's Disease International. And the reason I highlight them versus the National Alzheimer's Association is because we get listeners all over the world. And ADI is the association of all the Alzheimer's associations. And so no matter where you are in the world, if you want to tap into your local association, this is really the easiest way to, to find them. You'll also find great global information there um, regarding the, the G, uh, G8, now G7 summit. Um, of pulling the countries together and big research projects. They do an international conference um, every year, uh, but just really loaded with great, great information and resources. Um, we also have the Alzheimer's Research and Prevention Foundation, which takes a, a more of a holistic approach. And they are a wonderful community of people doing some really cool things. So they focus on, you know, um, diet and exercise and meditation. Um, so, you know, they kind of step away from pharma. 
um, and and medications, but how do you live and incorporate lifestyle into dealing with this disease? And then there are many people that don't just have Alzheimer's, they have all different types of forms of dementia. And so a couple other specific types of dementia that are quite popular um, and we're hearing more and more about are the Lewy body, um, the frontal temporal lobe, and um, also people who have trouble with their speech, which is called aphasia. And so there's a National Aphasia Association. Each of those can be very, very helpful um, to individuals dealing with specifics there. Um, so check out their websites as well. And then I think, uh, you know, I personally believe it's important to stay socially connected. And so there are a couple of um, organizations that I just think do a, a great job at helping us do that. One is called Coral Health, and that's C-O-R-O, Coral Health. And they have an application called Music First. So it's actually portable now, um, though you can get a system in your house as well. But they kind of do music prescriptions. And music is so, so powerful for all of us in terms of being able to change our mood. Um, think of how many times you've gotten teary-eyed or to put a smile on your face when you've heard a song. Um, it can... It can pick up our energy or it can put us to sleep. And they've figured that out. And so it's a great way um, to help somebody with dementia as well as their care partners um, live a better life by adding music in in a purposeful fashion. Um, Puzzle With Me was created by Jane Snyder. Uh, her mother had uh, dementia. And what she found was her mom really liked working puzzles, but there were too many pieces and too small. So she's made an age-appropriate uh, puzzles that are uh, thicker and easier to handle and fewer pieces, so uh, they're easier to do. And then James Creasy with Jiminy Wicket um, has put together a croquet game that's absolutely fabulous in terms of um, intergenerational families can use it, organizations are using it for training, schools are using it where they match up maybe a memory care unit and uh, school-age kids to play croquet. So it's, it's a pretty fascinating um, fascinating route uh, to be able to, to go and uh, very, very exciting, uh, very, very exciting fashion. Um, let me go ahead and introduce our first guest. You know, we're going to be talking in this first hour about how the heck do you pay for care? And this is a huge issue for so many people. And Eric Guerrara uh, is the Director of Operations for the American Elder Care Research Organization. And they produce a website called Pain for Senior Care. Now, Alex has learned the hard way about the challenges associated with care for the elderly and finding financial resources to pay. And now his goal really is to, to save others from the same fate that he went through, um, through this organization he has founded. So welcome, Alex. Thank you. Good morning. Can you tell us, have you been personally touched? I always like to ask people if they've been personally touched by dementia or um, any, you know, any, any type um, in their family or, or friends. 
yes, uh, probably. I think almost everyone who is who works in this field in one way or another has been has been touched. Um, in my case, um, I have a a, a, a um, grandparent who had Alzheimer's and a mother-in-law who has dementia. So we a couple times in uh, in my uh, direct experience. Okay. Yeah, it's always interesting to know some have and and some haven't. There's no right or wrong, but I just I always find it fascinating in terms of um how many people truly are affected, you know, by this by this disease. It's it's kind of astounding, um, you know, with it all. Um I think your topic is going to be a really hot topic because so many people struggle um, you know, at trying to figure out how how do I work with this disease? Um, how do I pay for it? You know, how do I stay afloat? It's a it's a big, big um task and it's a very confusing process, you know, to say to say the least, you know, with all of this. And so um why don't you why don't we start by talking about how does your organization help families deal with this these you know severe and and complicated ways of caring for a loved one uh yeah okay i think i think actually what you said is is absolutely true there it is incredibly confusing but in some ways that's good in that it's confusing, which means there actually are a lot of assistance options out there, and it's just it's confusing and it's overwhelming. But um, hey, at least it's not that simple where there is nothing. You know, there are a lot uh-huh. of options out there, so it's good to be confused. And what our organization tries to do is kind of minimize some of that confusion. Um, what we do is we we really focus on the question about how to pay for Alzheimer's or dementia care or aging care in general. Um, and we look at this kind of, we break it down into, there's kind of three ways you can do this. You can kind of find financial assistance for care. Another thing you can do is you can kind of look at different ways that you can lower your cost associated with care or, or lower other costs within your lifestyle that can free up more money to pay for care. And, and the third kind of leg of the, the chair or the stool is to how you kind of maximize what your insurance, what Medicare or other types of insurance uh, provide in the area of um, of care. Okay, and and that you know all of those can be very very complicated <laughs> to to be able to to be able to work with. How how do you help people sift through it all? Yeah, what, our our main outlet is through our website, and um, on, on our website we maintain a database of of every different financial assistance program um, nationwide that, in one way or another, relates to to uh, paying for care, or lowering the cost of care, or providing financial assistance. And this can be, um, I think, there's over 400 programs in the database from probably 150 different organizations. Um, so this can be, uh, you know, government programs. It can be veteran, local, federal, state government programs. It can be um, veterans assistance. It can be different tax credits and tax breaks, tax credit deductions that can really lower your cost of care. It, it, it's it's very diverse, um, very diverse number of resources that that you can use. Um, okay. And other. Nonprofits, foundations also have different assistance programs, and then there's also um, 
you know, an emerging number of private organizations um, who are offering different ways to help pay for care. Um, reverse mortgages or a lot of different variations on a reverse mortgage these days. And then there's uh, you know, loans which are designed specifically for, for care. So there's, there's quite a few different different resources. Okay. Well, that's wonderful, wonderful to know. So do you do, um, you know, when people go to your site, <clears throat> is there is there information just there for them to sift through or can they talk to somebody to try to figure out, you know, where they should hunt? Because even with, you know, over 400 programs and, you know, 150 different agencies and organizations, that's still a lot for someone to be able to, Go all right. Where do I start? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. It is absolutely overwhelming, and and we do we offer we offer multiple ways to kind of sift through these programs because as you know, eligibility is a big deal, and no one is going to be eligible for 400 different programs. Um, So we we break it down a lot of different ways and allow people to access this information a lot of different ways. for one of the easiest ways, if you're if you're kind of going to browse through the information, is we kind of say, hey, is is this a program which is related to aging in place or aging at home? Um, another way is looking, at, or another way is we can look at anything that pays for memory care or assisted living. Uh, another way we break it down is, hey, if you are interested in um, aging in place and you're interested in making home modifications, we have a whole section which kind of relates to how can one pay for you know, home modifications, the addition of a, a walk-in tub or a stair lift or a wheelchair ramp, all these sorts of um, you know, internal house modifications. Um, we break it down another way is uh, different technologies that can reduce your cost of care. So you can kind of go in and navigate if that's what you're interested in. But I think the, the, the core of, of what our site offers is what we call our resource locator tool. And what this is, it's, it's a series of questions that we ask about the individual who requires care, their age, their finances, um, what the conditions they have, and uh, a few other questions. And then uh, we use that information to search our database. And then the database will give you a list of programs which are relevant to your situation. Okay. So so there's different ways to kind of navigate. But you asked specifically, uh, is there someone to talk to? Uh, yes. We also do offer support through, you know, people email us questions all the time, and we do our best to get back to them in, in a timely manner. Um, so there are there's several different ways that you can access this information. Okay. Well, that's that's helpful. Um, do you have a, maybe a story in terms of, uh, I would imagine when you've been doing this, you hear back from people on what a difference it's made in their life to be able to find these types of connections, or um, is, there, is there a story that you'd like to share with us about that? Well, uh, you know, um, I think a lot of people are looking, what we hear is like from a lot of people is, hey, what's the assistance program that can help me? And mm-hmm. it's really, there's not, it's not one, it's a puzzle. You know, you're going to put together pieces of, from a lot of different assistance programs. Um, and that's how it's going to kind of, that's how you're going to solve this problem of paying for care. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of, of in the case of my mother-in-law. Um, we, I think that 
in the end, there were probably six or seven different re- different resources that kind of came together to to kind of solve this pain for her care puzzle. You know, we used uh, some technology from private companies, some um, home safety monitoring technology, which was able to really lower our cost of um, of having someone come in. Uh, there was also respite care provided by uh, our local area agency on aging. Um, we did some some home modifications that also kind of enabled her to kind of function more independently. And then there was um, you know, we used some benefits from Medicare, and then her Medicare supplemental insurance kicked in. Social Security played a role. So there wasn't there wasn't a single solution, right? There is a whole lot of small pieces that you kind of built together and kind of build a puzzle. Okay. Can you, you know, you talked about home modification. Can you give us some examples of of types of things? I I think sometimes people don't realize, you know, how important these factors are in terms of making life easier at home. Um, you know, that these that that these changes can 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 make in somebody's life. Yeah, and there's God, there's so many. Um I mean, the, 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 a big one is the uh, is the idea of, of a walk-in tub replacement for a shower. Because obviously, as as you age, you become frail and your balance is diminished. So a lot of people have you know experienced falls getting in and out of showers. So a walk-in tub is is a, is you know something that is super helpful. But that's kind of a, a big obvious one. I mean, there's a lot of subtleties out there um, that people don't think about. Um, for example shower knobs or doorknobs. Some of these mm-hmm. doorknobs are kind of, they're, they're hard to grip. If they're wet, they're hard to get any leverage on them. Um, they're, you know, plumbing, plumbing fixtures are, are made to be very tight so they don't leak. So people don't really think about knobs, but, you know, simply replacing your knobs with levers can kind of achieve the same thing. You can, with a lever, you have a lot more, obviously, leverage, and it's a lot easier for someone who is frail to work with a lever than a knob. Um, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. And obviously, um, you know, bars, um, transfer benches, just a lot of modifications like that. And then um, more common ones, light fixtures. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, one area in um, specifically for individuals with Alzheimer's is that I think the, people can experience frustration in not knowing what is where, where glasses are, where their clothes are, uh, what drawers are everything. So you can make some very simple home modifications where you can actually take pictures of of what's in a drawer and just put the picture on the outside of, of the drawer or the cabinet so you can look at it and say, hey, that's where it is, and it can reduce a lot of frustration. That's not a real modif- home modification, but it's a, it's a minor modification made within the home that doesn't cost anything. Yeah, well, and it's it's a good it's a it's a great tip, and it is it is a modification from everyday living. And one of the things you know with dementia that people will will talk about is that it's important um, for them. You know, if you go say go get your sweater out of the closet or whatever, that you know they don't see the sweater and don't kind of can't put together you know all the time where the closet is to get the sweater so kind of out of mind out of sight <clears throat> so those things are really important when you were talking about levers um and I sold residential real estate, and that that was huge because I worked a lot with the senior market and just you know instead of having those twist 
you know, doorknobs, just you could do it with your elbow, you know, to open it up with a lever handle or your hand. You didn't need the fine dexterity. Huge, huge difference as as people's, um, you know, uh, mobility changes and, you know, grips aren't as tight. I mean, I know I'm 55 now and I kind of chuckle because I can't open jars and I always thought my mom was nuts, you know. Well, why can't you open a jar, you know? And I'm I'm having a tougher time with my dexterity than than what I used to have, and so those things are are make a big difference. The lighting, um, and even placement of lighting. You know, um, you might want lights going up your steps, um, and these can be you know permanent yeah. fixtures, or you know nowadays there's just uh, you know all different types of of portable. Um, you know, fixtures that you can take with you even when you travel from, you know, placing night lights in or um, dimmer switches, um, you know, or adding more lighting or types of light so it's not as glary. Um, you know, it, flooring can make a big difference for people as well, which I'm I'm sure you're well aware of, you know, and you know, you always like the big cushy carpet, but again, as we... Um, tend not to be as stable on our feet, you know, harder surfaces are better, you know, instead of all these rugs and throw rugs. And I mean, it's it's very interesting, um, all of the, the variables. Today on Dementia Chats, we're actually going to have a researcher, uh, Steve Orfield with Orfield Labs, um, be with us. We're going to be talking about noise and noise reduction. And again, that's something that could be changed in homes. They're starting to change that out in communities um, to be more user-friendly. So the list kind of goes on and on and on with some of those home modifications, chair lifts, you know, for steps, railings, um, you yeah, know, different... floor surfaces. Yep. Yep, um, different kinds of cupboards over, you know, uh, over across the pond. I mean, they have like pull-down cabinets that are on hinges, so you can get to the high stuff, and it pulls down, and you push back up. It's, it's fascinating what what other places are doing, and you know, some of that stuff is fairly expensive, but there's a lot of modifications that don't have to be. And so, um, I guess I would say to people listening, you know, don't limit yourself. You know, get creative, ask the questions tap in and um you know check out check out their site um pain for senior services dot com and um you, you know you might be really surprised at what you can find to to help you you know live a more independent life because that's really what all of this is about um is is living independently and and more freely um we we kind of talked about you know all the information. How does you know how does somebody find out what programs are really going to be relevant for them? Um, can you explain in a little bit more detail that kind of weeding out process? I know you said you kind of had a tool to help people, but what kind of information would somebody need to have to complete that tool? Yeah. Um... So some of this stuff is, should be very readily available. Age, uh, gender, veteran status is another one. Um, but the, the financial information, you know, we don't ask for super specific financial information, but we ask in, in general terms, um, you know, in, in, monthly income is greater than or less than X. Um, mm-hmm. Assets greater than or X than X or Y or Z. 
so we ask, you know, financial information in those terms. Um, sometimes we, you know, everything, all the questions are optional, but we, you know, the more information that you can share with us, the more we can do to kind of refine the programs. Um, you know, I think I, I want to make an important point here, too, is that the, the different assistance that someone is available uh, which is available to an individual is going to change over time. It's going to change as their conditions change and it's going to change as their financial situation changes. So what we do when we, when we search our database and we provide you with a list of results, we don't just tell you, hey, you are eligible for X, Y, and Z. We say, hey, these programs are relevant to your situation. But you might not be eligible today for this particular program, but you could be eligible in six months for this program. So if you're going to build a plan that's going to, say, encompass five years' worth of time, you know, this is relevant to you, and you should be considering this program in your plan. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, another, th- another thing we do is we tell people, and this is directly from personal experience, which was, um, you know, when I was going through the situation, people would tell us or tell myself or one of my family members about a program and they might not have the program name right or they might not have all the information about the program so you know we would go to google and we would start googling this program and then we would find uh information about it and you know it would take us forever to dig through this information and then after digging through it somewhere buried we'd find the eligibility requirements and we'd find out oh uh, you know, my grandmother or my mother-in-law was not eligible because, say, she owned a home, but she didn't live in that home at the time, mm-hmm. or, or she was uh, two years too young or two years too old for this particular program. Um, so when we provide you with our results, we also give you a list of programs that are not relevant to you. And we think this is a great time saver for people because knowing, knowing, hey, this program is not relevant to me. It saves me from having to go and Google that program and research that program further. It's just, hey, straight up, this program is only available in California. It's not available in New York. So, okay, that's great. I don't have to research that further. Mm-hmm. Okay. So one of the things um, that I think people are leery about when it comes to – Oh, I don't want to say this. When it comes to their finances, is sharing details. So how much detail do they have to give you? Are they going to have to give you account numbers and passwords? I'm thinking no, but I, you know, I think that that's something that people need to need to know um, in terms of communication. Who do they, you know, when is it safe? Um, because when you're when you're doing <clears throat> kind of this weeding out process, you're just looking for numbers, not specifics of where's your money located and, and how do you access it. Correct? Yes, that's correct. Um, our we've created our our database and our, the form in such a way where it doesn't ask for any sort of personal information. Every question is structured. Well, for example, the income question. It says, what is the annual income of the individual who requires care? Is it less than 10000 Is it between ten and 20000 Is it between twenty and thirty, et cetera? So mm-hmm. that's the extent of the financial information you have to provide us. And if you don't want to provide us with even that level of information, you don't have to. It's an optional question. It's just mm-hmm. we just use that to narrow down 
the, the possible result that we can give you. And if, if you elect not to answer that question, we're going to include everything in your results. And then you okay. can actually go through. Uh, okay. So, no, there's no, there's no personal information required with the exception of an email address. That, that's really the only piece of personal information that we require. And, and the reason we do that is because the, the amount of information that we provide is usually more than someone can consume in a single you know, in a single sitting at their computer. There's quite a bit of information there, and we want people to have a record of everything that we've found for them so they can access it at any time, so they can forward it to other family members. So we do require an email address in order to, um, in order to allow you to save the information that we, we have found for you. So there is a, it does give you a web page with all your results, but if you want to save it, we send it to you an email as well. Okay, because I, I think that that's, an, you know, it's a scary thing, you know, and, you know, nowadays, who the heck do you trust? Um, you know, there's there's so many breaches of, of confidentiality and so many breaches of trust out there that it's very important, I think, for people to know who it is, you know, that they that they can count on. Now, um, is your are, is your company bonded and insured? Um, well, I, I, I think not in the sense that you're asking because we okay. don't provide financial advice. Okay. So, and it's, and, and we don't provide medical advice. What we are doing okay. is we are providing, well, l- let me step back and describe this better. I think that when, when someone's building a financial plan for long-term care, there's really, there's really two components to this. There is the discovery phase, what we call where you say what programs, what what options are available to me. And then there's kind of the strategic phase where you actually take that information and then you turn it into a digestible plan where you actually take action and you say, well, we're going to use this program here and um, we're going to consider doing a reverse mortgage to pay for care here. And as a long-term safety net, we're going to consider Medicaid as an option. So we don't, we don't, our organization does not say, hey, here is your financial plan. Our organization mm-hmm. says, here are the options available to you. And you're, and then you are kind of put in a position to, now you know all of your options. You can make these decisions about which one is best for my family. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, um, you know, I, I ask if you're, you're bonded because some companies are and some aren't. And, you know, I can see where it, it, it isn't, you know, you're not, like you said, you're not a financial planner. Um, you're, a, you know, you're a resource. I mean, I with my resource directory, you know, I'm not bonded specifically and I have a disclosure, you know, venture at your own risk because you just, you can't monitor what everyone else is doing out there, but you're just trying to put information out there for people to sort through. Um, and, you know, as much as even if you did a thorough examination of every organization, you know, life might be good, and then two seconds later they could hire just a nimrod, you know, that's unethical, and, and, and you, you, can't, you can't control that. And, you know, so I think it's important for people to be responsible for themselves as well, you know, with with that. Um, so I, know, but I, just, I think that mm-hmm. if, if I'm going to interrupt for a moment, I, I think you brought up a really good point, which the that your listeners are, are probably interested in, which is 
uh, hey, once I've discovered my options, is there assistance to help me sort through those options and to make a plan? Mm-hmm. And a, a lot of times, you know, the uh, spouse or, or an, an adult child is the, the person who is making these, make, putting together the, the puzzle pieces and making the plan. But there also is assistance available on the financial planning for elder care side. And mm-hmm. we, we kind of go into that on our website. We talk about the different options. But I, I would suspect that your listeners might be interested in, in hearing a little bit about that, if, if you'd like to hear me sure. talk about that. Yeah, please, please. Um, and, and there's pros to cons to them, and I think that's probably helpful to hear as well. I mean, at the, at the, at the, the most basic level, you can work with a case manager from a local area, aging, area agency on aging. And uh, they can help you with uh, kind of putting together a, a plan. Now, their world of options is is sort of limited to those that are available through th- their particular agency. So they might not be able to discuss the pros and cons of reverse mortgages with you, but they can discuss the pros and cons of any any program within their network of programs. So mm-hmm. they're a really good resource, and they work. They, there's no charge for using a, um, you know, there's no charge for working with someone from your local area agency on aging. Another okay. option are, another option are, are Medicaid planners, and and, and these I, I should say you should you know address this field with caution because there are some very very useful Medicaid planners, and there's some other people who call themselves. Medicaid planners, but they're really just trying to sell you financial products. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea of Medicaid planning, for anybody who doesn't know, is Medicaid is very difficult to qualify for. They look at both your income and your assets, and they have some very hard, um, very hard qualifications and a, a lot of nuanced rules about past asset transfers and, and whatnot. We won't go too into the details, other than to say it's complicated. Um, and one should consider uh, working with a professional Medicaid planner if they're thinking Medicaid is an option for their family, but they're unsure if they, if they qualify. Okay. Yeah, and I, I think that you you do. You have to be really careful when, when you're dealing um, – with any of this stuff, uh, you know, who are you dealing with? Because it's it's spooky stuff. It's and you know, people are in a vulnerable state, you know, and can be really panicky, you know, when they're dealing with this kind of stuff, and and rightfully so. I mean, it's totally totally understandable. Um, and it gets so overwhelming so quickly. I do want to just note that, you know, if anybody has a question or comment for Alex, you know, please feel free to call in at 714-364-4757. Again, that's 714-364-4757. Or you can always use the chat box as well. We'd love to hear any questions or comments that you might have? Maybe you've you maybe you've had some type of experience with different programs, um, and we'd love to hear that as well. Um, you know, how did it go? Maybe there's ways you know for improvement with with this whole 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 process because it really it really is a process. I, I even just figuring out your own medical bills these days is so complicated this is a bill this isn't a bill you know what you know what do you pay and when um it's not 
it, it it amazes me how complicated we've made things because I don't think that they need to be near as complicated as they as they are. I don't, I don't know what your thoughts are around that at all, Alex. Yeah, we try we try to really um, as we write about programs, we we really try to focus on the simplicity. Uh, a lot of if, if you go to some government websites which describe programs, you might see that things are written in, in basically legalese, and it's mm-hmm. so hard to understand. You know, a program might be described in 250 pages of a word of a PDF file, and they're giving you a lot of information you don't need, and they're giving it to you in a very cryptic fashion. Mm-hmm. So w- when we write about a program, we try and we do try and do a couple things. One, we try and write about it in simple terms, and we really try and take it from the family's perspective. Like for example, a lot of those documents are written for one government agency to another government agency, or from one administrator to a government agency, and they're just very confusing, uh, as you said. So we we really break them down to here's a program overview, here's the eligibility requirements. Here's the benefits and services that are available from this program, and here's how do you apply for it. Mm-hmm. And, then- and that's and that you know it's just boom one two three um, in terms of and it, you know for me it's just nice to know you're not walking the path alone. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, to me, that's just a, a huge factor because I know, even for myself, I start second guessing what do I need to do and how do I need to do it? And is, you know, did I, did they get it? You know, but I mean, it, it, my mind, and I don't know if that's just my mind would chatter, um, but it's, it's, you know, the more confused I am, you know, the worse that chatter gets and I think when people are in the midst of care or if they're in the midst of disease because there's a lot of people living alone trying to pedal through all this stuff um, you know it's deep muck and um, and very uncomfortable and yet it's something that most of us don't feel comfortable talking about with with friends and family because we feel like we should figure it out ourselves and um, so it's nice to know that there's a resource like yours to to help people, you know, pedal through and kind of make their way, you know, through all of through all of this. Um, so I, I really I thank you for um, for for doing this. What what motivated you? Was it really just kind of your own personal situation um, and, and frustration that you decided to to start start the company? Uh, yeah, yes, it was. Um, it's, you know, prior to this, uh, I, I work, you know, I, I live in the San Francisco Bay area and I worked in technology and, and I really realized that as I went through the process myself, I realized that how much applying some simple technology could, could really help people with this problem of kind of discovering programs and sorting through them for eligibility requirements. Um, you know, it, from a, from a technology perspective, it wasn't particularly challenging. From a researching these programs and learning about them, it was very challenging. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the the amount of information is so diverse; it's written about so many different ways. Um, that that that's really like you know a kind of funny story about this is when we started this, we were looking you know into what different programs paid for assisted living, and then we kind of realized that well. 
this concept of assisted living, you know, it might be called senior living or it might be called residential care or it might be abbreviated RCAC, a residential care apartment complex. And then we realized that, okay, let's start keeping a list of all the different ways that that different agencies and different organizations refer to this concept of assisted living. And we realized that, you know, that that list was quickly 10 different ways that you could say the same thing. And, you know, at this point, it's up to 15 different ways that you can say the same thing. This is very confusing to people. They just want to know what assisted living is. And suddenly there's 15 different terms for the same thing. Yeah. So this sort of this sort of confusion was really a motivating factor in uh, in in us launching this website and the, and the resource locator tool. Okay, well that that um, makes a lot of sense. You know, when you're touched personally, I mean you 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 just look at everything differently. You know, you're coming from a different angle and you see the nitty gritties of what isn't so effective that looks bright and shiny and pretty on the outside. <laughs> and then you then you really try to make it work on a realistic fashion and and it gets confusing and overwhelming really really quickly. Um it does. Have you and, heard and what you said and what you said right there about looking pretty on the outside. That's a really relevant point too. Um when when writing about these programs we realized that um the organization who's administering the program, they want to present the program in a, in a pretty light. And sometimes they'll neglect to mention information about the program, which doesn't reflect on the light positive. It doesn't reflect on that program in a positive light. And an example of this is there might be, for certain uh, benefits, veterans' benefits, there might be, this is particularly relevant now, there might be a six to nine month application processing time. Now, this is information that's critically important to someone applying for a benefit. But mm-hmm. when they write about the program, they're not going to kind of – they're hesitant to tell you that information. So we try and provide that kind of insight into a program as well. Hey, this program is a great program, and it can provide this much assistance for your family. Uh, but be aware that this isn't going to happen overnight. This could take nine months. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and nine months is a long time because so many times I think people wait too long to check into resources, you know, as well. And and I don't know if you find that, but I I think, um, you know, I see that a lot. And, you know, and they don't understand that there's this drag time, you know, out there in terms of, of really being able to get what it is that you need, Um when you need it uh it doesn't work like that and it's it's i think very very frustrating you know for people very very frustrating yeah. at at how long it takes to get help once you finally find it um you know it's it's kind of overwhelming um the wait or you know sometimes people will apply for disability and they're shocked that they sometimes have to apply three times and go through the process. And that's just kind of, people look at it, well, that's kind of how they weed people out. Do you really need it or not? And so many people are are suffering um, tremendously, you know, through that, through that process and, um, and, and feel almost violated by not being approved 
when they really need the care. And I don't know if there's any workarounds that you have found, you know, with that. But it, it's an emotional time because none of us really like asking for help. Um, but, you know, these services are there to help people. So we need to ask. We need to kind of move our pride aside and go through the process. And I think it's important for us all to give feedback on how are these systems working as well so that they can be improved. And I know it doesn't sound like people always are listening to, to us, um, but I think it's important that your voice is heard um, and and that we, we try, you know, to make make a conscious improvement in in the process. Um, well, this has just been really interesting, um, you know, with all of the, the information that you have, um, you know, for people who are interested in, um, in going to your website, I should put that in, I didn't put that in our, in our chat box, but it's pain um, for senior services, is that what it is, senior, senior care? Senior care, senior care. Senior care, yeah. um, dot com. And so I'm going to go ahead and, oh, it didn't connect. I'll do it again. Um, I put a space in here. Paying for, yeah. I'm doing it yeah, again. I'm so were, used to typing. <laughs> go ahead. As you were as you were saying um, that last bit, I was thinking about, you know, you were talking about the lag time and, and people waiting. And I feel like if there is, if there's one thing that, that we could change about how people, uh, it would be, you know, plan in advance. Most of us tend to plan for this in, in, in crisis mode, and the, the further you can plan in advance, the better off you're going to be. And it's it's really, it's, it's kind of, we were, we were talking about this last night. Um, you know, people plan for their children's education. They plan for their retirement, but they don't plan for elder care. And they really, you know, it, it, it is it's that big of a financial commitment. It's that important. And you need to plan for it. And we, we wish we could just kind of shake the world and say, hey, think, think in advance on this one. Because mm-hmm. planning in crisis mode is going to limit your options. Mm-hmm. And actually, you know, this is um, to di- differentiate between individuals with Alzheimer's and dementia and other forms of, of aging care. Um, usually with Alzheimer's and dementia, the families have a long lead time. You know, you, you get a diagnosis and you, you actually have some time to plan for it, which is, uh, you know, I hate to use these terms, but it's an advantage to Alzheimer's versus a family who's planning for care as the result of a stroke, for example, mm-hmm. which gives you no lead time at all. Yep. Yep, very true. Very true, and I think it's something that we we don't think about, but we are so afraid we are just so so afraid of um getting old and losing our independence and you know nobody um you know that's not what this is about it's about gaining independence it's about um increasing our our freedoms and um making smart choices and you know why we don't look at it like that i mean when i was in real estate uh, that was one of the obstacles we had constantly was you know the the senior or the person in need would know um in their heart and feel in their gut that a change needed to take place but they were so afraid of losing their independence and losing control 
and they were so afraid of being a burden to their their family and friends. And then the family and friends would see changes, know that things needed to be done, but didn't want to get into a fight and didn't want to, oh my gosh, if they agree, now i got all this work to do and my life's so busy, how am I going to get it done? So then they stayed quiet and then the professional who's making recommendations typically looked at just a salesperson and wasn't really taken seriously. And so the goal was to try to get everybody working on the behalf of the person in need and and getting them to realize all of them you know there's nothing to be ashamed about there's nothing to be embarrassed about this is life and it's all about living with purpose and you know um I would use the example that everybody moves for the same reason to um, be in a more comfortable spot for their lifestyle. And, you know, as we age, that doesn't change. But we're so used to separating people, making them different, um, and excluding them from things, it's really quite sad. And, um, you know, we need to bring people together and, you know, for this normality that this is okay. Um, this is this is life and we just need to adjust. And um, it, and it can be a very good life. Um, and it, it doesn't have to be the same as what we had. You know, when we're young kids and we buy our first house or maybe we get a bigger house when we have a family and then we go smaller because we're getting divorced or we're empty nesters. I mean, people are constantly changing, but for some reason with age and illness, we we look at it differently, and, and we really shouldn't. We should just look at it about living smart, living purposeful, and being as independent as possible, and that, that might mean some tweaking, just like we've done all our life. And so I really appreciate, you know, the work that you and your company have done to you know, pull these resources together because I know it's a ton of work, and and how the heck do you do you keep on top of them all with change, um, and to make sure that they're current? I would imagine some yeah. slip through the cracks. Well, then, no, that's a good question, and it's um, we we refresh all of the information on all the programs on that we profile uh, on an annual basis. Because that that is about how the eligibility change the eligibility requirements change, but but it's a tricky one because um, you know the way I'm getting into technology, but the way Google kind of looks at search results when you Google a program name, it doesn't automatically take the most recent information; it takes the most popular information. So uh, you know if you're the most popular information historically will be for the the previous year. So I might say program requirements or eligibility requirements for this program, 2013. And the 2013 will co- results will come up because that's what's been popular in the past, while it's the 2014 results is the information that I need. I don't know if that made any sense. No, it makes a lot of sense. And most people don't understand all of that stuff and, and how things are bought and paid for yeah. um, to, to be to the top. And and it's too bad, you know, um, but that is that is our system and kind of how it works out there. And, you know, we have to we just have to be aware of it and um, and conscious of it. And it's OK to scroll down a page <laughs> and see what else yeah, is yeah, there. Exactly. 
but you know we're also used to the immediacy of everything and so we think well if it's at the top it's the best and you know it may be but it may not be either yeah um it might be there for some other reason yeah yeah and i think as a society we have to slow down and get a little smarter um you know we don't have to go at this you know super fast pace all the time um, to feel like we're achieving or that we're successful, you know, or whatever, you know, whatever it might be. It just, um, you know, we're just, we've gotten kind of crazy. <laughs> you know, with yeah. It all. Um, so, yeah, very, very interesting, very, very interesting stuff. Um, you, you know, I know we're, um, I know we're almost out of time here, but the one story about that, um, about the, the staying current on the information about the programs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with one thing that happened, kind of funny story that happened to us was um, my wife found some information about a program somewhere online, and she downloaded a, a, a PDF file, a brochure about this program, and she sent it around to all the different family members, and we were all looking at this program information, and we're like, wow, this sounds great. This is, this is exactly what we need. And then we started to look for more information about this program, and, and we couldn't find anything. We couldn't find anything at all. And, you know, we were going to the state website and just state websites, state aging websites can be very, very confusing, but we were going to the state aging website and just digging through it and not finding anything about the program. But we had this brochure, and we're like, okay, this is weird. And then finally, I think I did a search for the name of the program and the word termination. Uh-huh. And then, uh, and then Google discovered this. You know, Google came back with this Word document, which was like an internal memo from one government agency to their administrators, and it said, you know, such and such program will be terminated in July 2011. And we're like, <laughs> ah, okay, that's why we can't find anything more about this program. Mm-hmm. But, but the, you know, but these PDFs they get out there on the web and they exist and they're just floating around, so the uh, so Google still finds them, and so you got to kind of beware of that. Look for dates. Yeah, dates dates are important. That's mm-hmm. that's for sure. Now, what's the best way for people to get a hold of you, Alex? What uh, do you want them to go just to the website, painforseniorcare dot com? Is that the the best yeah. uh, best route? Yeah, and then on the website, there's you know if, if they want to contact us directly, there there are links to contact us forms all over the all over the website. So uh, you can also reach us at info at painforseniorcare.com email address, but it's just as easy to find that on the website. Okay, well, and one of the things that I just wanted to mention um, be before we go here too is one of the nice things that you do is kind of a cost comparison. So one of them was, you know, having full-time care versus um, home care technology. And, you know, you you put in the cost of a personal safety monitoring system, a companion care medication, you know, management would be about $400 a month versus home care at 40 hours a week is, you know, almost $3,200 a month. And so, you know, we can, we can, go with this stuff in phases. Everything doesn't have to be done at at one time. Um, so again, I, I thank you for all you're doing and I really appreciate you taking time to be with us today. Um, it was it was very much a pleasure to to have you join us and um, look forward to seeing your work more in the future. 
Well, thank you for the opportunity. Okay. You have a great week then, okay? Okay. Okay. Bye now. Bye. Before I enter introduce our next guest. I'm just going to go over some mid-program highlights here. Um, one, if you missed our last show, um, we we had a really fun show with Cameron Camp, the Director of Research and Development for the Center of Applied Research in Dementia. And we talked about getting your detective hat on. And he also has a new book out called Hiding the Stranger in a Mirror. And it's a detective manual for solving problems associated with Alzheimer's disease and, and other related disorders, and it's really quite uh, quite good. So if you haven't listened to that show, every all of our shows, of course, are podcasts, so you can listen to them any any time. Um, the second half, we did kind of an open mic and talked about various uh, things about dementia and caregiving. Our next show on the 15th, we're going to have Gary Glazner uh, with us, who um, does a lot with poetry and engagement and socializing we're all he has a new book coming out and then we also have a gal who has written a book um, when caring takes courage so that'll be a really interesting conversation for us next week uh, dementia chats our webinar where uh, the experts are those people living with dementia will be today um, that starts at 3 p.m. Eastern time to central uh, 1 o'clock Mountain and Noon Pacific. Again, those are free. You can go to our blog or you can go to the main homepage uh, to get information uh, regarding Dementia Chats. Those are recorded and posted as well if you can't make them. Um, and we're going to have Steve Orfield with us with Orfield Labs, and we're going to be talking about noise and how how disruptive noise is and what can be done um, to help people um, with dementia um, and just our general population um, at large kind of with the over stimulation of, of noise and sound what can be done on the blog there were a couple of articles I want to point out um, one um, focuses on ARP and some of the great resources that they have for caregivers uh, Alzheimer's Research and Prevention Foundation did a wonderful article on exercise being the key to improving motor skills with people with dementia. And um, our intern, Michelle, did a, a nice article called Common Ground. And Michelle just always does such a, such a great job with her articles. We get lots of wonderful interaction from her. Again, want to just point out some of those um, associations and businesses that you might be interested in the Purple Angel Project, again, is the symbol, global symbol for dementia. I've put in the chat box a link on my site that tells you a little bit more about that. And I'd be glad to have a personal conversation with you about getting involved as an individual, an organization, or a community to learn how to be more dementia aware. And maybe the next step for you is to become uh, a dementia friendly, uh, which we can help you with as well. Alzheimer's Disease International, again, the association Association of all the Alzheimer's associations around the world so they can help you find one that is close to you plus they have great information on on uh, global research and and what's happening um, with our um, G7 summits um, and so forth and the the NIH 
The Alzheimer's Research and Prevention Foundation, again, takes on more of a holistic approach um, if you're not into pharmaceuticals. And then don't forget about the Lewy Body Association and Frontal Temporal Lobe and the National Aphasia Associations. You know, those deal with real specific um, and different symptoms, and they can be really helpful uh, to talk to somebody that knows about those specifics. The Alzheimer's Studies Group um, has a couple of clinical trials. One is in their third uh, trial for tau. The other is a fairly new trial on frontal temporal uh, dementia. And then socially, again, we've got Coro Health, that's C-O-R-O Health, with music first. They do prescriptions with music uh, to kind of help change our mood, and that can be beneficial to all of us um, but can be really helpful for those with dementia. Jiminy Wicket, that croquet game that's intergenerational and educational to boot. And then Puzzle With Me that has uh, manufactured puzzles that are just a little more user-friendly uh, for people with dementia. So let me go ahead and introduce our next guest here. I'm really excited to have him back with us. Uh, Dr. Alan Power is an internist, uh, geriatrician, and clinical professor of medicine at the University of Rochester. He's also a certified Eden Alternative Educator, a member of the Eden Alternative Board of Directors, and an international uh, educator and transformational um, and transformational models of care for older adults, um, particularly focusing those that have cognitive um, impairment. He has written the book, uh, Dementia Beyond Drugs, Challenging the Culture of Care, and was named in 2010 the book, book of the year. Uh, this was a really kind of an earth-shaking book that he put out. Um, opened a lot of people's eyes around the world on what is going on. He has been interviewed for the film Alive Inside, which is the award-winning um, Best U.S. Documentary for 2014 through the Sundance Film Festival. And he is also serving on the Scientific Program Committee for Alzheimer's Disease International for uh, 2015 in Perth in Western Australia. He has received numerous awards and has written many, many articles. Um, the list is almost too much to go through. He has now launched a new book called Dementia Beyond Disease, Enhancing Well-Being, um, and this was just released in June. So we are thrilled to, to have uh, Dr. Power back with us. How are you doing, Al? I'm doing great, Lori. Thanks. Uh, is my sound okay from here? Yep. Sound is good. Sound okay. is good. Yeah, we are really um, excited to have you back. You know, you you really write um, in such an an, an honest um, and profound way, really making people think in terms of shifting care culture. And I, I think that that is so critical. What drove you to to write this? Uh, you know, to to write these books. You know, you've got. Dementia Beyond Drugs, and and now this new one, Dementia Beyond Disease. Well, the first one, Dementia Beyond Drugs, really came from uh, 
a standpoint of, of really being in conflict with the system that led us to use lots of antipsychotic drugs and to, in my opinion, over-medicate people uh, with dementia whose needs we couldn't understand. And uh, when I had trouble explaining myself, I decided I had to write a book about it, and, and that's where Dementia Beyond Drugs came from. And, and so it not only was my attempt to, number one, debunk this whole thought that antipsychotic drugs were benefiting people, but also to begin to talk about how we might begin to interact differently to identify unmet needs, and also to bring in this whole idea, particularly for nursing homes, of culture change, of transforming the living environment so that we can care better. Uh, so that came out, and as you said, it, it certainly was a, was a different way for a lot of people of looking at things. And um, as I've been teaching uh, seminars based on that book and trying to focus my uh, seminars to educational tools that really help people, uh, I've really centered on this idea of well-being, and it was something that I just spoke to briefly in the first book, but as I was talking to the publisher about what could I do for a sequel, I really uh, was able to realize that I could take a one framework for understanding well-being and just expand it and look at dementia through that lens, and, and it led to a book that I thought would be just a short little supplement to the first book, but turned out being significantly longer than the first book, because when you look at it that way, all these things come to mind that, that I never thought of before, so it's been kind of a fun exercise. What what kind of response have you have you gotten from the first book, um, Dementia Beyond Drugs, and and then now your new one? And I know it's fairly fairly newly released, but what kind of response have you been getting from people all over the world? Uh, the response to the new book has been generally positive. I think people appreciate uh, certain certainly that sort of person-centered approach, and obviously other people have written about this. You just mentioned uh, Cameron Camp at the end of the last show, who's a, a friend of mine, and many, many other people really since Tom Kibwood 20 years ago have been writing about this. But I guess the things that distinguished my book were, number one, I had an MD after my name, and people are just so grateful that somebody from the medical profession was able to challenge himself and shift his own paradigm and then share that with other people. And the other thing was really bringing in this idea of how do you transform the environment uh, because uh, I think that is so key. And it not just applies to nursing homes, but also applies to really any living environment. Mm -hmm. uh, the new book is brand new. It literally came out about two weeks ago. Um, I have, you know, uh, certainly had a few people read it in advance. I've gotten some lovely endorsements and personal comments from friends and colleagues who have read the manuscript. And uh, uh, right now it's that quiet period where people are ordering it and maybe thinking about reading it, and I'm sort of uh, just waiting to see how people react. It's certainly, uh, like the first book, uh, it has a fairly easy reading style. It was the same way I speak. Um, so I want it to engage a broad audience. Uh, but it also uh, has a lot of real challenges, and some of the challenges from the first book I've actually cranked up a notch. So uh, I know that not everybody uh, who are good, caring people who are trying to do this work will necessarily agree with everything I say, but it's really a book that's meant to provoke some dialogue and uh, and raise the bar a little bit and see where we go. Well, and I think that's one of the things that I, I love so much about you is you're not afraid of dialogue. Um, you see it as a good thing, and I do too. You know, that's why I do what I do. It's like you don't have to agree with me. It's it's okay. Let's have a conversation. Let's discuss this. Let's get it out of the closet and out in the open, and let's just think about it, you know. 
<laughs> you know, I was just thinking about this whole issue of culture change the other day, and, and it occurred to me that the the biggest barrier to culture change is not I don't like it, it's I'm already doing it. <laughs> and so when people don't talk about things and just assume that nothing needs to change, I think that's a little more dangerous than people that raise legitimate concerns. Oh, I I totally, totally agree with you on that. Well, we, you know, we get stuck in this rut about perfection and that we think we have it nailed down and so it doesn't need any more work and then we go on to the next thing instead of truly focusing on always trying to improve care. And it fascinates me that that we go there and that we, we think it's okay to be stagnant. And, you yeah. know, I think that's why why we're in such a, a terrible state, you know, with our government, with our health care, um, because we, we think we have it down and and we abandon it instead of evaluating that things are constantly changing, needs are changing, you know, technology is changing, um, you know, everything is changing. And so, yeah, you know, I've, I've spent over two decades of my career working full time in nursing homes, and so I have been embedded in that experience. And I, I certainly understand it because sometimes when work is so hard, you just want a few months when everything stays the same, so you can yep. take a deep breath. Um, yeah, but but I think it is important for people to understand that yeah, life is about change, growth is about change. Uh, nothing is the way it was before, and I think you make the point, which which I get to in the last chapter of my new book, where I really look at the larger issue of aging in our uh, global society and dementia as well. That um, that our demographics are going to require that we do some radically different things, both in long term care and in our communities if we are going to be able to uh, to um, properly respond to our, our aging demographic. And uh, what is working now or what we think is working now uh, will not be acceptable 20 years from now. Very true. Very true, especially with the boomers. I mean, it's already starting to shift and change yeah. just because they're dealing with their folks and they don't like – they don't like what's available for their parents, you know, and they're yeah. surely not going to like what's available for them, you know. So, well, being a boomer we, myself, I can attest to that personally. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too, me too. It's a, it's a very, very interesting process. Um, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, on your your first book, Dementia Beyond Drugs, um, you know, that's been out since 2010. Have you have you um, felt that there's progress? Um, going on now in terms of reducing the antipsychotics? Uh, there is clearly progress. I think that there is a much greater consensus than there was four or five years ago that these pills are largely ineffective and largely harmful. Um, I think that there was a large proportion of people when the book came out who really thought that these drugs were helping a good number of people. I think we've been able to put a big dent in that, and I think uh, between the FDA warnings and the, the government initiatives, not just in the U.S., but around the world to reduce these medications, the additional literature showing less benefit and more harm than we previously thought, I think we've made some good progress. And certainly uh, we have gone from a point where um, several years ago when uh, Dr. Uh, Breesacker did a study, she found that uh, nearly 29% of all people 
in nursing homes in the year 2000 were taking antipsychotics at any given time. And that was people with and without dementia, and that was almost double what it had been in 1995 when these newer drugs came out, when it was around 16%. Uh, now we've gradually been working on that, chipping away since, uh, for, since the Inspector General report two years ago uh, with CMS initiatives, and we can say in nursing homes at least where we have, the, where we have data that that number is down just over 20% now. Once again, all people, I think if you just take the people who live with the diagnosis of dementia on their chart, you're still up around 30% or more. But still, we have made significant inroads into reducing the numbers. We still have a long way to go, but we definitely have made progress, and I think that progress has been mirrored in other countries around the world as well. Have I still got you? i got some silence here. Sounds like I may have lost you, Lori. Should I call back? Oops. No, okay. There. Are we doing okay now? Yeah, I, I have some silence. Yeah, did you catch what I said there? Uh, yes, I did catch what you said, and I think it was at okay. my end. You know, technology at its finest, you know. <laughs> That's okay. I just wanted to make sure you hadn't lost my comments and I didn't need to call back or something. Yep, nope, nope. We 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 caught the comments. I think, like I said, I think it was at my yeah, end should, here. I guess we should mention the people that I'm not down the road for you. I'm in, I'm in the Rochester that's in New York, not the one that's in Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, no, I I've definitely seen a huge change in the conversation, um, and it's really been quite exciting. Not only in communities, but with families being much yeah. more aware as well. And I and I think that that's. Um, uh, pretty fascinating because, you know, with families, pretty much they used to just kind of go with the lead that the doctors gave them. And they're having a lot more opinions. There's been a lot more talk. Um, and there's more options. Um, and I think people are starting to see the the benefits of, you know, the, the social best practices and the effects that they're having, you know, with people. Um yeah, you know, Which, once again, I've been in the position of being a nursing home doctor. I was also in private practice and before I went to long-term care. And, you know, I don't know what the general public opinion is of nursing home doctors. I think there's still a proportion out there to think that uh, we've done that because we can't cut it anywhere else. But, but you know, you, when, you're out, <laughs> when you're out there and you have a, a, an internist or a GP who's been telling you that your loved one needs this medication and then you go in and you meet this new doctor, who you've never met before, that the nursing home is assigned to you, who tells you that it's a bad thing. It's, it takes some takes some explaining. You can't just wholesale change medications without building some trust and helping people understand why you're coming at it from a different angle. True. And it's, you know, I mean, I, I've seen so many people, too, and my mom never went through this in her 30 years. Thank God where she ended up on the, you know, the psych ward you know, for six weeks where they take them off right. and try to put them on. And, um, but I've had many friends and, and clients that have had to go through that whole process. And people were just shocked at how many things that they could be removed from, you know, that they were taking for so long. But, you know, we forget about all the contraindications, you know, with, with drugs. I mean, and we have to be conscious of that in, in everybody's life, you know, not just people with dementia. Um, in yeah. terms of what it is what it is we're using and why we're using it instead of just masking symptoms and then 
cre- creating new ones. <laughs> you know? Yeah, <laughs> you know, I'll make I'll make one other comment about about the drugs, and, and uh, obviously I will, will want to move beyond that because my my personal feeling is I've I've been talking about drugs so long that I, I want to just move on and say, listen, we all agree this isn't the right idea, but you know, right there in Minnesota, you have the Acumen uh, Group of Homes, who mm-hmm. were pioneers in uh, in getting a grant to reduce antipsychotics, and I mm-hmm. know I haven't checked in with them lately, but their early results showed that um, by using some extra education, a little bit extra staff support, that um, when they started with their first small homes removing the antipsychotics, they found that after several months, number one, they didn't have to restart the medications. But more importantly, they found that, that these people who did not appear overly sedated on the medication were all of a sudden thinking and doing things they hadn't done before. And they realized that even though you may not be falling asleep in your plate of food, there are subtle effects on your cognitive and functional abilities that these drugs are causing that we didn't realize. And until you take them away, you don't realize how much better people can get sometimes. Yep, very, very true. Well, well, let's move on and talk about what you mean by well-being and how does that lead to new approaches? Um, yeah, you know, uh, this really came from a, a little discussion I had in my first book where I was talking about what are our goals and, and you know, how uh, too many of our quality of life scales, unfortunately, are based in this kind of medical model thinking that base your quality of life on what you can do, your cognitive level, your functional status, how healthy you are. And, and those are all important things to measure. But if that's all you measure, then by definition, the person, say, with Alzheimer's could never have quality of life because if they can never remember everything or do everything they could do before, then we're saying that, that their quality of life is less than perfect. So so I really started thinking, well, what are things that go beyond that? What, what are things that are available to any person regardless of their diagnosis or their abilities? And there are some very important things that we all have that are important to all of us regardless of who we are. And there are many, many models for this thing I'm calling well-being. And I chose one, and you mentioned my affiliation with Eden Alternative, and this actually came from a white paper that a group of culture change specialists uh, commissioned by the Eden Alternative wrote about uh, 2005. And once again, uh, talking about Minnesota Connections, Dr. Leslie Grant was one of the people who was involved in the in the paper, I believe. And... Um, and uh, this came up with seven what they call domains of well-being, seven aspects of well-being. And these are the ones I use for my book. They're not the only framework. And what I invite the readers to do is to just go along with the way I look at them and the way I teach them and how I use them. And then if you have a different framework you like better, you can probably do it through the same process and do just as well. But the framework I use, these seven domains are identity, connectedness, security, autonomy, meaning, growth, and joy. And these are things that we all need, regardless of our age, our nationality, our culture, and really our medical diagnoses. And so theoretically, these are things that we should be able to try to optimize in all people. And even though the person living with dementia may not be able to maintain all those fully by herself or himself, if our care environment recognizes the importance of these and cultivates these, we can uh, we can help the person to enjoy a certain amount of well-being. And I've gone farther in this book to say something rather radical, and that is that my work with this has convinced me that most of the distress that we cannot easily identify a solution for, I believe, comes from erosion of these various aspects of well-being. And that if we work proactively with existing strengths to to enhance these domains of well-being, 
then we actually get a key to sustained improvements in people's uh, engagement with life, and that's what's going to make us be able to remove medications and keep them away because we're getting behind all those needs. If we just react to the moment, we're never really understanding what led to that moment in the first place, and we're never going to get to sustained results. Yeah, I I totally agree with you. You know, um, my mom, um, you know, people go, oh, she she couldn't have had dementia that long, you know, because it was 30 years, and I'm like, well, she did. (laughs) She did. We we, we all lived through it. We all lived through it but her, you know. She just passed away, but um, she was very aware of it. And, you know, for 10 years she was told that it was hormones. And yep. um, and then by the time it was taken seriously, you know, they said, oops, um, she's got the mentality of a three-year-old, you know, and it's definitely this and blah, blah, blah. And I'm, I'm very anxious to get the autopsy back um, yep. on her to, to, see, to see the results. But, you know, people were just like, well, no, that's impossible. And I'm like, well, you know, so is going to the moon. As long as you're talking about that and we're talking about some of the challenges my book brings out, let me let me throw one out there, too, because I think you're alluding to it and showing how she kind of defied the so-called experts. So my personal feeling is the only experts are the people who actually live with dementia and teach the rest of us what it's all about. But, um, but you know, one of the domains which people might challenge that I just listed was growth. And can people living with dementia actually grow as people? As, human beings, and I do believe that growth is always possible. And um, one of the things that leads me to challenge in my speaking is this kind of retrogenesis approach that so-and-so is like a three-year-old. Um, and certainly people may lose certain capabilities so that their ability to uh, do certain things may be at the level of a certain age child. But, you know, a person who has lived 70 or 80 years, who has experienced education and marriage and sexual intimacy and child rearing and jobs and volunteer work will never view the world through the eyes of a three-year-old. Um, mm-hmm. And so once again, I think that when we're told to see people that way, it teaches us to really sell them short as far as what they understand and what their potential is as human beings. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. That's a great point. Um because mom, uh, you know, she was just so filled with love and caring and compassion. And even when she was in the nursing home, um, one of the things that, I mean, we used to chuckle about all the time was the, and the nursing staff was just shocked, is she knew everything that was going on. <laughs> and I said, well, yep. she, was always, she was always a great eavesdropper and she did not lose that skill. You know, <laughs> she knew she knew exactly, but she was very engaged, and I think, I really think that's why she lived as long as she was, because she did have a fulfilled life, even in her, you know, she was in her end stages four years, which again, you know, people go, I can't be. Well, you know, do you want to read her charts? Yeah. <laughs> you, you want to look at the video? Um you know, but she she still was engaged. There were people there pulling her out and um, allowing her to be who she was and embracing that person. Um, well, you know, I think no, you're, you're very wisely stating what the limitations of a neurobiomedical view of dementia are. When we see stages and we see expected patterns of decline and we don't see the person, that's exactly it. We sell people short. We do what kid would call positioning. Uh, we expect less of people, and that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, unfortunately, for for many, many people, you know, and, and 
And uh, so I think that it's great that you're pointing that up because what is end stage? You know, it's just another part of life. And if you expect certain things of people, then uh, you may not uh, give them the opportunities to live as full a life as they could otherwise. Exactly. Exactly. And and our lives are constantly changing. And, um, you know, I always use the, I, I have a thing called freeze framing, where I, I wanted my mom to be who she used to be. And it didn't mm-hmm. hit me that I was even doing that until I looked at a picture of the day I got married. And there's this beautiful picture of my mom, my dad, and I. And I looked at the picture and I go, okay, my dad's dead. My mom's got dementia and I'm divorced. Nothing stayed the same. Why why am I still trying to hold her in this spot? You know, and and that was such a huge shifter for me, you know, to be able to look at that and laugh at it and go, how silly am I? You know, how silly am I? And it's not something to blame family members for because they, they do, unlike professional care staff, they do have this whole history of a relationship with somebody who may have been a parent, a mentor, uh, uh, you know, someone to go to for advice, and that role does change. And, and it's okay to grieve that loss, but it, but it becomes difficult when, as you say, you become so stuck in who the person used to be that you no longer see who they are and engage who the person is today. And I know mm-hmm. uh, I know Dr. Richard Taylor, who I'm sure you've spoken to many times, uh, often says when he gets, uh, you know, gets... Um, Concerned about people that are too hung up on on memory and reminiscence that that you know I'm trying to make sense of today and my family members only give me yesterday you know and mm-hmm. and I think that's a really important shift that you made that that people have to navigate and not to deny them the the grief that is real and that they have to experience but to also know that the best way to move on is to move on with that person who is here with us today. Oh, exactly. And and the other thing I think, you know, that was the big shift is, you know, just that word caregiver is, um, and it's what we use here in the U.S., and I try to say care partner, you know, and, and merge yeah. those, but, you know, we look at it as a one-way street, and no relationship is a one-way. If it is, take a hike. You know, it should <laughs> always be, it should always be a two-way street. And, you know, I, when my mom passed away, um, which was just recently, I know for Mother's Day, I did a whole article on the gifts she gave me through her illness and the lessons she continued to teach me, even in her end stages. And they were miraculous, fabulous, life-changing lessons that um, changed who I am, how I look at life, how I treat other people, um, you know, to be more accepting and less judgmental and love unconditionally. And, I mean, the list is just massively long. And that, you know, I don't think I would have gotten all those lessons without being with her through that journey. You know? I'm sorry, in my new book, I, um, I... you know, my first book leaned heavily on, on two experts, Richard Taylor and Christine Bryden, and I have a few other quotes. I really intentionally with the new book tried to get many more books written either by people living with different types of dementia or by the, the people who cared for them. And uh, one of the things that comes across in the, in the second-person narratives of the family members, uh, the books I read, was the incredible growth that they obtained as a care partner through the experience of caring for a loved one who lived with dementia. Uh, As you said, I don't think a lot of people expected when they started that it would be a two-way street 
and that they would become a different human being at the end of it. But um, mm-hmm. uh, my friend, my friend, Dr. Nader Shabahangi, who's probably the most Zen person I know when it comes to dementia, he'd be a great one to have on the show because he really is way outside the box. And um, and uh, I have a quote from one of my many, him in my new book, about uh, a, a seminar he held with a young woman who, during her 30s, uh, cared for her father for almost oh, six or eight years, I think. And and really had to pull away from the kind of career building and engagement and travel that most of her peers were doing. And for the first several years kind of resented it, but at the end of the experience said that she had had some of the most life-giving experiences. And uh, at the end of the experience after her father passed away, saying that she would not trade those years for any other life she could have had. Um, So really, really powerful testimonials along those lines. Yeah, and I, I... I, yeah, I'm, well, you can hear it in my voice. I, I totally believe it, and I think it's it's you know that whole social connection and accepting the different phases of life. Um, one of the things um, we're going to have on, on our dementia chats today is I don't know if you know Steve Orfield with Orfield Labs. Oh, no, oh, you you would love him. Um, he is, uh, in fact, I just talked with him this morning. But he does a, just a ton of research, and he's looking for universal care standards. And so they've partnered now with uh, the uh, Autism Association, and they're looking for others to say, you know what, this doesn't just affect one group. And so on Dementia yeah. Chats, we're going we're gonna to talk about noise levels. And so he went in and, and they assessed restaurants, and he said the noise levels are just ridiculous. And and um, you know they did a big article. He's going to send it to me. Um, but he he was talking about you know at the age of forty, it starts affecting all of us. You know then you add disease into it, and it makes it even worse. So you know making these changes can help everybody instead of pointing out that we you know we have to build this bridge for these people. You know it's just healthier for all of us, you know, in the long run. Yeah, and I think I, it's... I'm, I'm Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm, I was, was going to say, I address that, that in both my books. I have a visualization uh, for long-term care in my first book where I ask people to sort of sit down, close their eyes, and audit the various sounds they hear in their environment. And it's not just the noises that we would recognize as intrusive, but what are people on the TV saying, and how does a person with dementia uh, sort of understand that? And I do take that a lot farther in my new book, and I often liken uh, people who live with conditions like dementia or autism as being like the canaries in the coal mine. They may be the first to react to a situation, but ultimately it's a situation that's toxic to all of us, and though the rest of us may shut it out, uh, I, I agree with you that we are actually doing this not just for them, but for all of us. And I quote some studies in my new book uh, where they've taken uh, healthy younger individuals, and not even not even 40 in some cases, and had them sleep and had them exposed to levels of noise such as aircraft landing and, and uh, things like that, sirens, and not at a threshold that wakes them up completely, but they mm-hmm. monitor their body systems and they see the increases in pulse and blood pressure and actually stress hormones in the blood, uh, cardiac function, and show that these noises actually are affecting all of us on a very subtle subconscious level. Yeah. Oh, I, I can believe that. See, I just realized, um, Al, I missed a question here from somebody in our audience. Terry is asking, and maybe you know this, do the statistics for Alzheimer's medication mirror the rates of skyrocketing medication use in other populations, particularly like children? 
I believe they do. And, you know, uh, when we talk about antipsychotic use being out of control, um, dementia is probably the biggest actor there, but um, it's important to understand that drugs like these are being applied in a lot of cases where I personally believe it's not a great a great thing. You know, um, uh, I have seen children being given antipsychotics uh, because of, you know, diagnoses like oppositional disorder, you know, and all these things that have become justifications. And when we see the harm in older people, you know, with a few years of these medications, it makes you wonder what happens when you give these to an 8- or a 10-year-old. What's this doing to Mm -hmm. people? And obviously, as you know, there are doctors who are writing uh, books that are very challenging towards some concepts around things like ADHD, and not to say that the condition doesn't exist, but that it may be way over-applied and way over-medicated compared to what is needed for people. And I do think this is a societal pattern. And one of the points I'm very explicit about in my new book is that antipsychotic overuse, for example, in dementia, is not a nursing home problem. They have the demographics we can study, but there's actually a lot more antipsychotics being taken in people's own homes in the United States than there are in nursing homes. We just can't measure that, so we don't make a lot of noise about it. But the truth is that these are broad societal paradigms and patterns that uh, it's not just dementia, it's not just nursing homes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that that was a great, uh, great question, and and that you know I just look at the boomers and everyone kind of accepts the the antipsychotics and oh I'm just taking this I'm just taking that I have a lot of friends <laughs> on different things and 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 you know with my parents you know that wasn't for for their generation for a lot of them it wasn't a cool thing to be on um, and something that they were a little embarrassed about. And and now that seems to shift, so it seems much more popular. Just give me a pill. You know, take the edge yeah, off, do this, do that. It's partly the fixed mentality. You're right about that. Mm-hmm. That sort of, I need an answer and I need it now. It goes with, you know, being frustrated because your computer takes 30 seconds to give you a, a web page or something. We we want these immediate answers. And, and you know, the, the drug Abilify is now, uh, from what I just read recently, it's an antipsychotic. It's one of the newer ones. It is the number one selling pharmaceutical in America. They had nearly $2 billion in sales last year. And once again, that's going to people with schizophrenia, but it's going to many people who don't have uh, psychosis. And as you know from TV commercials, it's being yeah. advertised in the, gee, is your depression not quite responding as quickly as you'd like? Why don't you add this drug? And, and you know, uh, the vast majority of people who live with, with clinical depression never need a drug like that. And, um, and I think personally, my personal opinion is these things are being way over-marketed and way overused. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. I, I think the marketing of them, you know, and, I, and I, I giggle every time, you know, when they rattle off the side effects in the nice, soft voice. <laughs> oh, yeah, like, no, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like, like no one's supposed to notice, and apparently they're not. You know, apparently we are ignoring all of that. And it's just, but again, it's it's this need that we have for this immediacy all the time. Just just fix it, just make it go away. You know, it can't be anything that I have to work on. You know, it's, it's someone else's problem, so they need to fix it, you know, for me. And it's just, it's such a not healthy um, route to, I, to I go. Think, I think advertisers understand the human psyche better than most of us do, and they know that you can put a warning on the side of a cigarette box or you can you can sort of in a low, fast voice rattle off all the side effects of a drug, and people just become sort of immune to it over time, and they know that that's going to happen and that even though they're required to do this, the effect is diminishing, and so they can kind of get away with it because people do tune it out, as you say. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, they can even, you know, sponsor programs to try to get people to quit, you know. <laughs> and, yeah. and, they, and they know it's, it's still going to work. It's still getting that name out and building trust. And, yeah, it's it's a very, very interesting, interesting process. Can you um, talk to us a little bit about your approach to um, – be applied to different forms of dementia and different stages of dementia or different living environments as as a whole can you can you share any specifics sure. I think that's a real important question, particularly about the new book. I, I certainly tried to do it with the old book too um, and some people you know I, I get these two day seminars that are very in depth, and uh you know a few people think that I should be spending a lot more of my time giving a lot of medical information, talking about the different stages and talking about all the different forms of dementia out there and and how they're different from each other. And I really have kind of an anti-medical approach in my teaching. And and I do that for a reason. First of all, uh, you know, if you're paying my fee to come out and give a talk, you don't need most of that because you can get it from your local Alzheimer's chapter or a lot of other educational organizations teach very well about those things. So you don't need to fly me into town to do that, but more importantly, um, I, I'm teaching a lot of people that provide hands-on care and support, whether it be a family member or whether it be a professional staff member like a nurse or a nursing assistant or someone like that. And um, I'm looking for approaches that people that apply to most people. That's why I love the well-being approach. It is so universal. And, you know, if a, if a CNA is caring for 10 people and uh, somebody uh, who they're caring for at the bedside becomes stressed, I don't want to teach an approach that forces that person to have to stop and pause and think, okay, is this frontotemporal dementia, is this Alzheimer's, is this stage 3B, is this stage 5C? That That's not practical and that's not usable. And so I've come up with an approach that I think is nice because it really applies to for all forms of dementia, it applies to all stages, and it applies to all care partners in all living environments. And, and uh, I think if we try to teach... Uh, things that are too pigeonholed, number one, they're not practical, they're not going to be learned, and number two, they actually cause us when we pigeonhole people to make generalizations. Oh, he has Lewy body dementia, so he's going to do this, or she's going to do that because she's stage four. And when we do that, once again, we position people, we sell them short, we don't see the individual, and I think it blinds us to seeing uh, the unique uh, solutions that we need to find. I, I agree with you. I, You know, when I speak, I pretty much stay away from statistics as well because I what I found for for me and my family and friends was you know you can give us all the statistics you want but what we really wanted to know was how do we live with this disease how do we do this gracefully (laughs) how do we how do we maintain our you know our sanity and and still have fun and love and joy I mean where where did that go how do we lose that priority you know it's like hello we're out of here and and I think people gravitate to that and um, on many levels because a it's practical, you know. B you're saying I I don't have the fix. I have some options, you know. And it's about building a toolkit because yeah. one answer does not work, and a lot of the other approaches are trying to say this is it, um, this is the magic bullet, you know. And I and give so I think framework. To do this, you know, and this well-being framework is a very good practical framework, and I give people the tools to use it. But I tell people, uh, if you present Mr. Jones to me, I may not give you the answer to Mr. Jones's situation. That answer will come from you and the people that know him well. But I can give you the mindset, the framework, and I may mm-hmm. tell you, you know, this may 
circle around Mr. Jones' sense of autonomy or sense of connectedness, but then it's up to you to get to know him and find out how to do that. And and because it's you in this radio show, I can I can push the envelope more than I would in a lot of interviews and say, you know, when we talk about categorizing and staging, uh, something that occurred to me, and, you know, autonomy is that real hot-button domain of the seven I mentioned. And mm-hmm. one of the things we do, and I actually got this from an article my son shared about music, not about medicine, but, but when we categorize things, it actually is a means of controlling things. When we label things, that is a way of controlling. And so we have to resist those things because they lead us to try to exert dominance over something that, as you say, you can't always predict. You have to understand how to partner with that person to understand what their unique solution is. And that's hard for people that want a nice algorithm they can check off the boxes and follow. But, boy, if it were that simple, we would have solved this years ago. Well, and the the other thing I think that we forget in this whole equation, because everybody kind of wants to blame somebody. I mean, that's kind of part of the pattern too. You know, I have yeah. to, I have to fix it, and it's like, no, you don't have to fix it. You need to learn how. You need to accept it, and yeah. um, be be gracious about. It. That's one of the biggest things I you know I hear from people with dementia all the time. It's like. Stop trying to fix me. You know, it, it, we can't <clears throat> fix this, but we can we can do workarounds, and you know we can live our life a little bit different, and it can still be healthy and fun and exciting and all of those things. It might not be what we envisioned, um, <clears throat> and I think in order to do that, we also have to look at ourselves in terms of who are we in this equation because a lot of times we're always looking at fixing them you know fix the other guy because we don't like to look deep you know i mean that's evident by the, by the pills everybody takes you know and, and yeah. stuff and, and so, i often say um, you know who's who's got more capacity to shift you know the person who has some cognitive challenges or the person who doesn't it's really our duty uh, and and the 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 uh, metaphor I use all the time is the person whose legs become paralyzed is in a wheelchair. We don't force him to walk up stairways. We build ramps for him because we know that's what he needs to succeed. And we're not building ramps for people with dementia. It's not so much physical ramps as it is cognitive ramps. We force mm-hmm. people to follow our patterns, our living environments, our schedules, our staffing. And then when we can't, we blame their disease and give them medications. And, and we're just doomed to failure. And, you know, once again, the the, the correlation with other other conditions such as autism is so strong because when you do hear people's voices, you realize that this is what society does. With it. it's, it's what uh, many years ago Karen Lyman called the medicalization of, that we have to label things that are different from the norm and try to correct it. And and actually, the most recent book I read uh, was not about dementia; it was actually about autism. It was that wonderful book by the Japanese boy uh, Naoki uh, Higashida, "The Reason I Jump." Uh, which was him writing with the aid of a of a uh, word processor, all the feelings he has that he can't communicate verbally to his care partners, and uh, a really stunning book. And and that's why books written by people and talks given by people living with dementia are so powerful because they tell us things that we don't always see from our own lens. Mm-hmm. Very very true. Well. Well, I can't believe we've been yapping already. We've got like 15 minutes left. I could I could talk to you all day long because I just I I love talking I, about this as you can tell. <laughs> yeah, well, and I just I you know I love your approach. I love I you know I, I love that it's just you you know when you talk to me, it's it's just so common sense, 
and you have fun with it and it's um it's it's realistic and it's easy and it's comfortable and and that really comes across in 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 you know your writing in your talks um and i really appreciate that cuz i think it's i think so many times we get so data heavy that people just get overwhelmed trying to s- sort through it and you're talking in real terms, and you know. Really, um, let's, let's also acknowledge, though, for the people listening, that that mm-hmm. that this is not easy. Of course, so that it it seems like common sense, but it's. Uh, and I don't want people who are providing care uh, who who find this very challenging to think that I'm saying that that this should be easy for them because it's not. But but the truth is that the answers do not, as you say, have to be as complex as we make them. And that's really where this whole culture change, this whole transformational models of care idea comes in. And once again, this is not just about nursing homes, but about your own house. Um, it, it may seem like common sense on the surface, but to actually bring it about in real life with real people following real patterns is hard work. And that's why that's why the culture change piece has to be taught. You can't just tell people reduce drugs or be person-centered unless we give them a pathway to actually operationalize the philosophy. And that's that's where this whole transformational approach comes in. And I spend a lot of time in each of these, you know, the seven central chapters of my new book are, are each of the seven well-being chapters. And I look at how they're challenged by dementia, but also and, and not only the intrinsic changes of dementia, the forgetfulness and other cognitive changes, but also how the well-being is challenged by our care practices and patterns. I talk about specific areas such as segregating living environments, dementia in the community. I digress in different areas as, you know, if I want to get out of a soapbox. But then I finish every one of those chapters with ways that you can use transformational approaches to your care and support to actually enhance those domains of well-being. Because it makes sense to say, yeah, people need more control, they need more connectedness, but it's not always intuitive. How do I how do I do that in real life? How do I do that in my job in a nursing home? And so uh, it does require some explicit um, uh, teaching because we're not taught to think that way. And that's why this book is such a different approach. It gives you lots of answers, but but I have to take people through it step by step because it doesn't just come to people. It's not. It, it may seem simple on the surface, but boy, it's not easy to do. Well, and don't you think part of that is just the way it's pitched? You know, it's pitched to be yeah, complicated, yeah. and it's pitched to be hard, and it's pitched to be fearful, um, because that's how we raise funds. And you yeah. know, and I think if, if we can if we can start shifting some of that stuff, um, it'll all it'll all make sense. Um, and you know, if we just learn to to breathe and you know, not I mean, you look at having a kid. You know, there's there's no magic. <laughs> bullet in terms of parenting right and i mean i remember for us you know we went to one one of our classes that's all we could make because we were too busy and we look back and we still giggle at that one it was like we were what you were too busy to you know to go to your classes but it was that's where we were where we were at we bought books we did this we talked to friends and you you're never going to get there isn't you know there isn't a job description for these things, you know, because yeah. it's a relationship, and a relationship ebbs and flows, and it's not stuck in the mud. You said the magic you know. word. You know, when you said there isn't a job description, the first thing that pops in my mind is, well, there is a job description, and the job description is to build relationships. And and uh, you remind me of this wonderful video, which you can find on YouTube now, uh, that my friend uh, Daniela Greenwood made down in Australia with the with the corporation Our Care Australia. And uh, I will uh, give you the the uh, words you can search 
to uh, to find it uh, because uh, she says those words. She says, you know what? We not only understand here now that relationship building is important, but it is the most important thing we do. And um, a, a good example of that, I was just talking with a, with a group before our, our call uh, who I'm going to be doing some consulting with, and we talked about this tricky idea of integrating people, uh, you know, with dementia versus segregating people. And um, one of the interesting things that I heard from a community I was working with recently is that when people are living together over time in a living area, say in an assisted living or nursing home, and some of those people who are their neighbors subsequently develop dementia, the people who live there are much more accepting of them with their changes than they are with uh, somebody who moves in fresh who already has a diagnosis of dementia. And once again, that's just one more clue that shows how the knowing and the relationship with people is so critically important uh, to supporting people Um, because, once again, it can make or break it can make a break, make or break uh, a whole living environment, and uh, how people are accepted and embraced. Um, the YouTube video is called "It Takes a Community," and if you search that and the name Arcare, A R C A R E, or search Kathy Greenblatt, the wonderful photographer who made this movie down in Australia earlier this year, Kathy C A T H Y Greenblatt with one T on the end, um, you can see the 16-minute video that shows how one initiative to have dedicated staffing, in other words, the same people caring for the same people all the time, led to some amazing outcomes uh, for the people uh, living in the Arcare homes and profiles the home Helensvale, which is down near Brisbane, Australia. Um, it just has a lot of wise things. and really speaks to what you're talking about in such a beautiful way that I can't say in just summarizing it right now well and and it's true i i saw the video and i told kathy i'll push it out um, but i wanted to wait till after the holiday to do that because it is flipping brilliant it is it is it is absolutely and you'll notice marvelous. if you see my book that daniela gave me so much valuable content and helped so much with the way i framed the opening and, and closing chapter of my book that i actually gave her a byline in the last chapter because i, I just couldn't more formally, I couldn't not more formally acknowledge uh, all the wisdom she gave me. She is, she is uh, like me, a musician turned uh, person caring for those living with dementia, and and so she may be using her right brain more than a lot of uh, medically trained people do. And um, and you can just hear by the things she says on that video uh, how she just really gets this and embraces it, and she has such a a beautiful knack for communicating it to those who provide care so that they understand it and, and embrace it. Yeah, it's it's very good. I can't wait to push it out. I I had pushed out uh, the one that she did with uh, 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 Colin uh, McDonald as well, and I was able to meet with uh, oh, yes, his yes. team from Australia. I had about eight hours of their time when they were here. I was just thrilled to death um, because they're just doing some cool, cool stuff too. So, yeah, she's Kathy's got a, a series, um, you know, of videos, uh, short films coming out that are just so powerful. And so, yeah, I'm going to help help push those out any way I can because, uh, it, you know, and, and Danielle just has such a great voice when she talks, and she's just so <laughs> heartfelt. Um, she it really absolutely exceptional, exceptional 
uh, film. So, yeah, you can look for that on, on the blog. I will be posting that yet this week. don't know if I'll get to it today or not. I'm hoping to. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's so the other much. thing about that video, I guess, is that she points up the, the, important, uh, the important role of leadership, that it's important mm-hmm. to teach those hands-on tools and skills to the people that provide care. But uh, leadership continues to drive this by, by embracing the philosophy, by living it, and by being right in the driver's seat or in the passenger seat with those people, helping them through all those challenges and not just saying go do it, uh, but really, really being engaged. And, and I think that's this, uh, our care is a community of 22 different communities around eastern and southern uh, Australia. And the fact that they could, as Kathy says at the end of the video, do this not just in one home, but have a community-wide uh, initiative really is a powerful statement about the leadership of that organization that should not be missed. Yep, I agree. Well, Al, we just have like five minutes left. Um, so <laughs> why don't why don't we, in wrapping up, did you want to cover some of the challenges um, to kind of the conventional care practice that you're that you're seeing and that you've raised in your well-being, you know, based philosophy in your in your book? Absolutely, and 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 um, you know the the first book. Most of the challenges really were thrown at the whole idea of the narrow biomedical view of dementia and the idea of medicating people with pills. That was really the main thrust of my first book. Um, As I've used the well-being framework, I have come to challenge some of our daily care and support practices much more than I did in the first book. And also, I I probably believed a lot of them at the beginning, but I was a lot more timid because I was kind of bucking bucking society when the first book came out. I've been emboldened by my last four years of traveling and speaking. So so, uh, (laughs) while I still have the kind of same easygoing writing style, take a few of these to the next level. And once again, this is, uh, I preface it by saying this is not to demean the wonderful people who are providing support out there, but to say that they are good people working in a system that may not be the system that really lives up to these ideas of well-being. And the wonderful thing about using the well-being framework is it's a value-based, principle-based framework, something we can all agree on that we need. And so it's not about I'm right and you're wrong. It's about if we agree that these seven domains are important to us, do our practices really live these domains? And so one of the big ones, and the reason I mentioned our care and Daniela Greenwood is because of the idea in formal care environments where we are constantly rotating staff members instead of keeping the same people caring for the same people. And I won't get into I'm going to list some of the challenges without going into the full arguments because time doesn't allow for that, but the book will spin these out in detail. We have to stop moving people around. We have to create relationships and deep knowing uh, that's one, and, and I go through every one of those domains of well-being and talk about how rotating staff erodes well-being. Another big challenge I brought up in the first book, which I've now been emboldened enough to take to the next level, is the idea of, of continuing to integrate people who live with dementia and not doing the segregated so-called Alzheimer's care or memory care. I think that also is a harmful construct, which also, as you'll see in the last chapter of my book, um, when we look at aging demographics, and dementia demographics is whether you agree with it or not, it's financially unsustainable. Unless we start developing communities differently, developing care differently, um, this is a broken system that will only lead us to bankruptcy. So, so it's it's just uh, going down the wrong path. And I talk a lot about that. I talk about things like not only having support groups for family members and support groups for family members in tandem with people living with Alzheimer's, but also support groups which are only people with Alzheimer's, facilitating each other. And for a lot of people, that's something that just doesn't make sense. Or having Alzheimer's cafes that are not 
done just in conjunction with family members. Because once again, um, there's a level of discussion and interaction that happens when you have those other people in the room that does not meet all the people's needs. I uh, talk a lot about autonomy and not eliminating risk, but negotiating risk, understanding the quality of life involves taking on some reasonable risk. And how can you negotiate risk to empower people uh, to do things they want to do without thinking that we can ever create a bubble where people never have any risk of any harm? Uh, so as you can see, and that's under autonomy and security. I talk about the things we do that we think are making people more secure, like alarming doors that actually erode security or using chair alarms. Um, and so lots of things that, that once again, from our sort of dominant caregiver uh, eyes look reasonable, but from the eyes of the person who's experiencing them are really not reasonable and really erode their well-being. And, and I'm just touching on the surface because we're running short, but but um, be prepared to, as, as Christine Bryden says on the back of my book, uh, be prepared to be challenged because uh, in a good way, in a respectful way, I want people, like I've done for myself, to really look at everything we do and say, is this really the best way forward. Mhm. Well, Al, I appreciate all the time that you gave us and I would love to have you back. Like I said, I could I could talk to you for a week oh, and probably not not yeah, run out of conversation. More audience questions when we have the time and really hear what people think of this and what's on their minds, what what their stumbling blocks are and then we can we can get into the weeds a little bit more and go into the details. Wonderful. And your website is alpower.net, um, or you can email email al at doctor, and that's dralpower at gmail.com. And there are also links to Health Pro Press and Amazon on the page here. So thank you all for listening and participating, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye now. And thanks, Lori, for all you do. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Hey everybody, Jared Sebesti, your host of Retire Repurposed. This podcast is dedicated to help people transition into fulfilling and purposeful retirements. Retirement is a big life change. In fact, the two most dangerous years of a person's life are the year they were born and the year they retire. Few people could just flip the switch from working a career 30 or 40 plus years retiring on Friday without methodical steps to living what we call a repurposed retirement. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.